Uh, first, Gillian Claire Kohler from University of Toronto. Her research and teaching has focused on global pharmaceutical policies. Uh, she's worked on pharmaceutical policies with several international agencies. Her PhD is from New York University, and a more complete biography is in the program. Also, uh, Brent DeMoville, Senior, Develop uh, Senior Director of Human Resources and Corporate Talent um, at Allergan Incorporated, a global technology-driven health products company that has a major production facility right here in Waco, Texas. So we are uh, very pleased to have him with us today. Uh, he has um, BA and master's degrees from University of Texas at Austin, uh, another master's degree from Angelo State, and a PhD from Fielding Graduate University. And in the interest of time, we will proceed. Thanks. Um, thank you, first of all, um, my thanks to Stephen for the invitation. So it was, it's always a great opportunity to come to a different, obviously different country, different mindset, different challenges. So I'm pleased to be here today. I'm also glad to see that there's still a few students. Thank you for staying, because actually you're the guys that I'm, I'm trying to speak to. Um, so in the interest of time, I may not get into full detail about what I want to explain to you. If it does uh, trigger any further interest, please feel free to connect with me. Um, my email's available, and I believe these are all going to be posted. So in a very, very short period of time, I am going to try to tell you a story about some work, some research that I've been doing with colleagues over the past four years. And what I'm focusing my talk on is something that some of you may or may not know about. It's called Canada's Access to Medicines Regime. And it's essentially a way to modify intellectual property law to export medicines to poor countries. But I'll get to that in a minute. Let me just tell you first about the three main areas I'll talk about. One is I'm not sure about your background in the drug, the global drug situation. So I just want to briefly set the context because I think today we've been hearing a lot of different points of view, and I'm not sure we've really addressed what, I, what I'm going to speak on. Then obviously I'm going to go into what's known as CAMAR, and then I'm going to close, and I'm going to close quickly, but I'm going to leave you with some pretty um, heady questions, which I would say are things to think about for future, for research, or if you're interested in terms of do we need to be rethinking all of the models of intellectual property, and I put the acronym up there, IP. So I think, you know, as we sit in this very comfortable room and it's sunny and beautiful outside, um, we, we have to unfortunately recognize that we don't live in a fair world. We, we live in an unjust world. And some of us are just simply lucky and some of us aren't. And, I can, you know, you can think about that in very broad terms. I'm going to relate this to the issues of medicine. Most of us sitting in this room, I would imagine, if we wanted to go to a pharmacy here, would be able to get access to medicines. Either we'd be covered through, I know in the U.S. it's different than in Canada, you maybe have some private insurance, maybe your university covers you if you're a student, or if you don't have coverage, hopefully you have enough money to pay for whatever drug you need. There is also in our world, and, and I think many of us are aware of this through the media, there has been a lot of very high-profile deaths. If you think of a lot of the celebrities in the past year or so that have died 
due to prescription overdose. So that also says that something's really gone off here because there's a lot of people who really need drugs and there's a lot of people who can still get drugs and then there's some people who are just actually getting too many drugs. So it's, it's a kind of strange and not very good situation. And to quote my PhD supervisor, Adam Chavarsky, he's someone who believes in the concept of luck to explain certain things. And going back to what I said is, you know, we, we do live in a world where sometimes luck matters. I live in Toronto, Ontario, where we have coverage um, for some citizens through our public health care um, system that works at the provincial level. It's far from perfect. We have lots of issues with it. But at the bottom line is that, it, you know, in the scheme of things, it works it works pretty well. So going back to my point, why is there an issue about lack of medicines worldwide? And I have lots of other graphs which I decided not to show you today where it demonstrates that, you know, in terms of the actual um, value of medicines consumed, what you see in Africa is something like 1% of the global value of sales, whereas in North America we see almost 50% underneath that. So there's, there's real skewed distribution. Um, obviously money matters, so the whole point of economics can governments afford to pay for medicines, and can people um, afford to pay for medicines? Also, there's the whole issue about, you know, we've been talking here about business, profit, all that, but what happens when you're pricing products that people need but can't afford? So there's very costly drugs, for example, some anti-malarials, some TB drugs, some, obviously we've heard a lot about what's been going on with antiretrovirals, but also for some other, other conditions. So we have, you know, hep C, diabetes, cancer drugs, and this isn't just, you know, these are not just diseases of so-called rich countries. These type of disease conditions are, you know, it's called the double burden of disease, where developing countries are acquiring some of the diseases of the richer countries. And obviously, what you need for all of this is you need to have governments doing their job. So sometimes there's failed states, there's war, and obviously when there's situations like that, or you, you know, we've mentioned Haiti earlier on this morning, when there's a breakdown in government, that's going to have, you know, an impact on every area of life, particularly getting access to medicines. And sometimes, even though governments work, it's actually very weak. So one of my problems in my past life, when I worked at the World Bank, I got the opportunity to travel to a lot of different countries, and what always bothered me was when I saw government officials telling me how, you know, everyone had access to the basic medicines they need, but then I would, you know, turn down the street and go into a little pharmacy or go to a, a small public health clinic and see that, in fact, that really wasn't the case. So it is a messy, messy area. Um, I don't know if you can see this properly, and I would encourage you to go on their website because it's a full report, but this is from Health Action International, which is an international NGO, and essentially, and they're, they're throwing in all different kinds of countries into this mix, and it's, it's looking for ciprofloxacin and essentially looking at the difference between the branded and generic price of the drug on one day, and what you can see is there's just humongous diversity depending on where you live, and again, this isn't just relevant for poor countries, this actually comes into play um, in rich countries as well. So you can see the United States on top, you can see Canada somewhere towards the bottom, and then they have other countries that we traditionally think of as poorer countries, so then the Guatemalas, the Indonesias, the Pakistans, etc. But the point is, drug pricing, no matter where you live, oftentimes can be very confusing, unclear, and worrisome when it means that some people who need to get access to medicines aren't getting them. 
So that, that's a very, very brief introduction. I usually spend a semester speaking about it, but I'll, I'm just giving you my, this is 101, Pharmacy 101 in about five seconds. Um, I'm going to move now to what I need to speak about, which is the whole issue of how global intellectual property standards, in this case, pharmaceutical patents, and patents, for those of you who don't know, patents create market monopolies. They allow the inventor a limited period of time, in this light, 20 years from data file to expiration of patent, to control, basically, the market. What it means is you can't have you can't have competition from generics. And again, I'm sorry for throwing a lot of complex terms at you quickly, but I just want to go through some of these points. So what happened is in 1995, the world came under a new trade regime, uh, the World Trade Organization, a lot of new rules and regulations. Part of this was new laws for pharmaceutical patents, which is subsumed under the trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights. And this created a little bit of turmoil amongst some developing countries and some health activists because in their minds they thought and they've, this has born, been borne out maybe not to the extent that some thought maybe worse it's, it's hard to say that if you have deeper patents globally then you're going to have less access to medicines which is as I've pointed out earlier already a problem in many many countries. So what happened was in November of 2001, this is not a binding statement, but there was something called the Doha Declaration on Trips in Public Health, and a variety of uh, ministers got together and they said a lot of things, but the most important part is that we believe that if you know countries need to interpret this, if they are applying this TRIPS agreement, which they would be if they're a member, it needs to ensure that it doesn't create a risk to public health and medicines. The problem is that within the TRIPS agreement, um, even though there were some limitations, there were some flexibilities, I should say, sorry, some flexibilities for countries to wiggle out of some of the patent requirements, it didn't always work for most countries. And let me try and explain to you what I mean by that. Within the TRIPS agreement, there was a provision which stated that some countries, if they see fit, can, under a public health emergency and other situations, issue a compulsory license. What that essentially means, for those of you who don't know what it is, is that it can say, it can forego a patent, it can manufacture a drug, and pay a royalty, ideally, to the patent holder. Now, the problem was, if you were to make use of this, which many countries could, for example, you know, Thailand, Brazil, etc., um, you need to actually have the capacity to do so. So the question is, what happens to countries like Rwanda that absolutely need drugs but can't make use of this wiggle room in the TRIPS agreement and don't have the capacity to do so? So what happened was everyone got together and after about a year and a half of wrangling came out with this idea that, all right, we need to try and have some kind of solution. The solution is we're going to allow countries like Canada that do manufacture drugs to have what are called specialized compulsory licenses. What, the, what this all means is that they can then import drugs to those needy countries that can't make them for themselves. So I, I, I've been throwing around a lot of legalese, a lot of technical terms. I apologize for that. But at the very least, you guys get kind of my point of what I'm trying to say. Countries that cannot manufacture drugs, at least now through this agreement, can turn to another country that does manufacture drugs 
and get a specialized license. The idea is if I need a drug and I'm, Rwanda, I'm a Rwanda Minister of Health, I can turn to a Canadian company and say, look, I'm going to want to work with you through the World Trade Organization. I want to seek an exception to this TRIPS agreement. We want to get your drugs in our country. So it sounds good, but now I'm going to talk about what happened in practice. So Canada, as soon as this decision was made, through a lot of various political reasons, decided to take on a global leadership role, moved very quickly, in fact, um, amazingly so, and amended our own Patent Act and Food and Drug Act. And why we did this is that we wanted to make sure that we could get our drugs to poor countries. Um, basically, this act, is, it's now known as the Canada's Access to Medicine regime. It was associated with a former Prime Minister, Jean Chrétien, who left office shortly after this was passed through. And it was granted royal assent. In other words, it was actually put into place in May of 2005, so not that long ago. And what's really important here is that when this legislation was actually passed, within it there was the idea that we were going to do a very very careful review of the legislation in 2007. So basically there was a review program two years after it was implemented. But here's the deal. The devil is always in the details. So now I'm going to bore you with a bit of the details. Canada's now passed new law to help poor countries that need drugs get drugs. It's doing it through this new regime globally. But in order to do it, there's a lot of hurdles and administrative procedures it has to go through. So I'm not going to read through all of them. I just want you to kind of look at this process and, and just think as you're reading through these various steps, if this is a way to get medicines to people who are dying or who are in urgent need. So, you know, essentially you've got to identify a pharmaceutical company, you've got to have um, certain notifications going out about what you're doing to the World Trade Organization or the Canadian government. Generic companies have to do a lot of um, in, uh, negotiations with patent holding, holding companies, and only then can they get a compulsory license. Now, and the worst part of all of this is that even in the best case scenario, let's say you actually succeed, a, a generic company gets the blessing to go ahead, gets the compulsory license, yada, yada, if you want to export another drug to a different company, or even the same drug to a different company, a country, I should say, you have to go through this whole process again. And remember, we're talking here not just about statistics, not just about you know imaginary people. We're talking about real lives, people who are dying, and people who need access to medicines. So you know, here are some more examples of limitations. I'm just going to skip through it in the interest of time, but this will be on. Online, so you can read through it and also if you're interested I have done some writings about this. As I mentioned I've been working with a team of people to look at the implications of this legislation from a variety of perspectives and what I just want to show you quickly are some of our findings that we got. We interviewed about 30 people over the course of 40 years. We tried to get a variety of different stakeholders so we tried to get NGOs, we tried to get Canadian government people, industry people and developing country representatives. And essentially, you know, here's some of, you know, here's some of their points. Again, these are perceptions. This isn't hardcore evidence, but these are perceptions which in my view still count. So, one of our developing country representatives basically said that 
really they weren't involved in the planning process. And that's true. Canadians, and I find, I don't know what it's like here at Baylor University, I find at the University of Toronto, with the best of intentions, some students sometimes, they want to go out in the world, they want to do humanitarian policy, they want to do global health, and there is absolutely nothing, nothing wrong with it. But at the end of the day, you always have to think about it. Who am I trying to help? Am I going off to kind of get a rush by going off to India? And, you know, even though it's great, you, you know, not to say you can't get a rush by doing good. Of course you can. But you always have to keep in mind who are you trying to help and how are you doing it so this is similar to what happened here with Camar the Canadians got all excited we were going to save you know the world's medicine situation but at the end of the day when we first started the process we didn't actually involve the developing countries which to me is a huge a huge weakness the generic industry came out and said look we're supposed to be the main ones that are, getting, are going to get involved in this. We're the ones that are going to be exporting these medicines. But you've got to make it commercially viable for us. You know, they are not philanthropic organizations, and there's absolutely no faulting a generic company to say, look, you guys want to make money. They want to do good, for sure, but they want to do good and also make their ends meet, or better yet, even make a profit. Okay, I've got five minutes, so I'm going to keep going on. What was interesting was the research and development industry. We have our own R&D association in Canada, which is linked up, obviously, with pharma and IFPMA, which is the U.S. and then the Global Industry Association. They offered kind of lukewarm support for the legislation. Now, my take on it is a little more sinister. Um, I don't shy away from my viewpoints. My take on it is they originally liked the legislation because they knew it wasn't going to work, because it's, it's really a nightmare when you read through the original legislation. And they were, their point was, let's not look at patents as the issue. Let's look beyond patents. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying that, and that is true. But at the end of the day, this was legislation that was focused on the issue of trying to make patents work better for poor people. NGOs tended to have similar perceptions as the generic companies, so they realized that you've got to have the right commercial incentives in place. You've got to have you know, the right amount of developing country input. You need to make sure it's not cumbersome. You need to make sure it's not too long. Um, and also, at the end of the day, once this comes out, you need to make sure developing countries really want to use this. And I remember at the time I was in Ghana when this came out and I was talking to some colleagues and I was asking them, you know, what's your view on this? And again, this is not scientific evidence. This is just anecdotal evidence. But really they scratched their heads and said, you know, why bother? Why would we go to Canada? We can get cheap drugs through India, which, you know, is a very valid point. Now, the Canadian government, in its typically careful way, um, but fair way, noted that it's very hard to create a new legislation because there was no other global precedent. At the time, I mean, Norway had passed legislation. There are some countries that have passed similar legislation since then, but they didn't have any model to follow. So they were kind of doing this blindly. And, you know, they, they felt that it was an important, you know, policy initiative to say, hey, we're out there, we want to help improve access to medicines. And they did also acknowledge that the policy, the actual reading of the legislation, the policy process, the review process that happened later on wasn't exactly as optimal as it should be. So did we actually move forward? Well, as I mentioned earlier, there was a review two years after it passed. Now, when this review happened, it was, I believe, it was close to the week before Christmas. It was on a Friday night. Um, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out. Usually the week before Christmas on a Friday night around 5.30, not too many people are busy worrying about what's happening to KMR. 
And when you read through the report, my interpretation of it is essentially this government, which was a new government, by the way, didn't really want to do much with it. They figured this is, a, you know, we currently have a conservative government. It was the conservative government at the time that saw this 2007 um, uh, uh, review. It was a liberal government that had put it in. And essentially what they were saying is, look, we know, we think it's fine. We're not going to make any major changes. We need to focus on other areas. Now, despite this very negative story, and I know I, my time is short, but I want to end on a kind of happy note. There actually was a case study of this legislation being used, and it was being used in Rwanda. Now, there's a lot of reasons, and again, I'm having to kind of really rush through the whole story here, but the bottom line is Rwanda actually notified the World Trade Organization of its intent to use this to get a triple combination antiretroviral to about 20,000 people, and they were working with Canada's, one of Canada's, in fact, only purely Canadian generic companies, Apotex, which I should mention is a privately held company, which is a big bearing when you go through this case because they really didn't make any money out of this. And essentially, Apotex got the compulsory license, and a first shipment of drugs went out in September in 2008. And there was a very quiet shipment that went out in last September. And it's interesting, being someone who watches this, I'm based in Canada, I've been pretty aware of the media attention on this, and it, there was such high level of media scrutiny at the beginning. It kind of peaked again just before the AIDS, uh, we had the International AIDS Conference in Toronto, and then it just died. And what's interesting is this second shipment was, quite frankly, I don't even know if it was reported in, in more than a few newspapers, very, very quiet. And I think I, I normally don't like to have PowerPoints with large, lengthy uh, text in them, but I actually think this one's important because this is from Apotex. And essentially, it confirms a little bit about what I was saying earlier on in terms of the process. So what it says is that, you know, they've sent off these, you know, their second shipment. Um, so the total quantity of medicines was enough to treat approximately 21,000 people with HIV for one year. And then it says, importantly here, under CAMAR, the process would have to be completely restarted if Rwanda needs to reorder more of the same medicine or if any other developing country wanted to place an order. So far, no other developing country has indicated it wishes to jump through the hoops imposed by CAMAR. So I, I feel that's a very, very uh, illuminating press release, hence why I included all of it on my page here. Um, what is interesting, and in fact, on my way over here, uh, yesterday in the airport, I was being interviewed by a journalist who was asking me a question about there's some new initiatives passing through Parliament in Canada right now to streamline the legislation. A lot of NGOs have been phenomenal in terms of pushing this forward, trying to make it sensible for the generic companies, trying to make it workable for the developing countries. And amaz amazingly enough, there is currently one going through Parliament um, so that's hopeful. So we'll have to see what happens. But at the end of the day, and I, I think I've, you know, I've written about this with others, I, I don't think CAMAR is going to solve the world's ills when it comes to medicines. I think it would be foolish and irresponsible. I do think, though, we could get a much better piece of legislation in place to use it as one way. And then I'll do the really provocative and probably obnoxious statement of saying, does it really matter even if we have IP? Because right now, we're going through a whole transformation when it comes to intellectual property law. So if we think about the fact about Unitaid coming forward, there's the whole patent pooling mechanism coming forward. 
There's the whole issue about countries wanting their own technology to make their own drugs. And, you know, forget patents. We just want to make our drugs. Most of the drugs we need are off patent. So, you know, put, let's put those aside. Let's look at the fact that people from, you know, you look at all the pandemics. I think one of the speakers today was noting them all. So SARS, avian flu, et cetera. Countries don't want to be beholden to other countries when a crisis starts. They want to be able to have their own secure medicine supply. It's a sovereignty issue. It's a security issue. And finally, I'll close. I think that, and, and I think it's not even just happening, I think it is happening, that the pharmaceutical research-based industry is being changed in many, many ways. So if you look at the location in terms of the emerging markets, so we have India, China, Brazil, uh, South Korea as major powerhouses in terms of manufacturing. They are growing. Traditional markets are shrinking. We also have to think of the fact that other models like the open access mo uh, models and music are beginning to be commonplace and get a lot of traction. So I don't think it's crazy to expect that one day we're going to start seeing kind of downloadable pill. Here's how you make it. Here's what you do. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. I'm Brenda Mobile. I'm also, as she said earlier, I'm pleased to see so many students here, particularly on the, the day before your big game. Really appreciate you taking the time to be here. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell, talk to you a little bit about Allergan as a company, and then I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the pharmaceutical industry, and we'll actually talk a little bit about the development and discovery cycle. So you'll get another perspective maybe on uh, patents. Uh, first, about Allergan. Uh, Allergan is a multi-specialty healthcare company. Uh, we discover, develop, and commercialize innovative pharmaceuticals, biologics, and medical devices that enable people to live life to their greatest potential, to see more clearly, move more freely, and express themselves more fully. That's our corporate mission statement. And I'll tell you, most of the people that work for the company, we we really see this as something that we care about. We, when you ask people why they're working there, they aren't working there because they're getting paid a salary, though that's an important part of it. But they're also working there because we're making products that really do serve a larger need. And that's really important to the people in the company. Our headquarters is in Irvine, California. We have approximately, actually this is a little bit outdated, we now have almost 9,000 employees worldwide. We have sales and marketing presence in more than 100 different countries around the world. These are some of the products that we make. Uh, we have several major areas that uh, we manufacture in. We have the eye care products, and some of these you may have used that are over the counter, like Refresh Dry Eye Therapy. We also have uh, pharmaceutical prescription versions of dry eye therapy, like Restasis, which is for severe dry eye and actually addresses the underlying condition. 
We have a number of products for uh, glaucoma, like Lumigan, Alphagan, et cetera. We have a urologic area uh, that makes Sanctura. In our neurosciences, we have Botox, which is probably what we're best known for. Uh, we have a medical dermatology area where we have a number of different products to treat skin conditions from psoriasis to severe acne. And then we have a new division that we started about three years ago. This is Allergan Medical, and this came through uh, the acquisition of Enamed as another company. And we really created this medical aesthetics uh, uh, arena. And this is where Botox as a cosmetic uh, resides. It's also where Latisse resides, which is a new product for actually growing your eyelashes. Uh, we have Givaderm, which are dermal fillers, a lot of things that are in that cosmetic arena. Uh, we have global manufacturing. Uh, we manufacture uh, some of our products in California. Uh, the major North American manufacturing site is actually located here in Waco. Uh, and we manufacture most of the products that you saw on the earlier slide. Uh, we don't do Botox. It's done uh, actually in Ireland. And we don't do the urologic products. But other than that, we manufacture pretty much everything in this site. We also have a site in Costa Rica. They do more of the medical device work, uh, the breast implants, that type of thing. We have a site in Brazil that does a lot of things more regionally for the Latin American area, though they do also do some drugs uh, that are more for global use as well. We have a site in Ireland. Uh, they do a lot of the same things that we do. In fact, we're, we back each other up for global supply on those products. And then they're also the site that does uh, the Botox. And then we have a, a facility in France that does the Juvederm. Uh, just out of the Waco facility alone, we have over 360 different SKUs. And if you're wondering, well, wait a second, I didn't see 360 products on that other slide. It's because as you start talking about SKUs, some of these may be the same product but in three or four different sizes or for different countries. So those are all considered <laughs> as different products. But we have over 360 that we ship to over 63 countries around the world, uh, which creates some interesting challenges for us that I'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, these are some of the key products that we do produce here in the Waco facility. We produce Lumigan and Combigan and Alphagan, which are all glaucoma drugs. Uh, Restasis for dry eye. Optive is for dry eye, but it's not uh, a um, prescription drug. We have Refresh Tears, Tazerac, and Latisse. So that gives you some sense of Waco. Uh, what I want to do now is I actually want to shift a little bit away from Allergan and talk more broadly about the pharmaceutical industry as a whole. Um, I've worked for Johnson & Johnson prior to coming to Allergan, and I've worked with colleagues in a number of different pharmaceutical industries. And there is one common factor that I see for all of us, is we view this as not just a livelihood, but also as a calling. Uh, it's something where we aren't in this business to entertain people. We aren't in this business to do things like that. We're in this business ultimately to make products that impact people's lives. We do also, we are not nonprofit, so we do care about making money as we do it. But the first and foremost thing in all of the companies I've been involved with is the patient. That's the number one thing in our mind. Um, looking at the industry as a whole, this is data from 2006. The pharmaceutical industry in the U.S. employed 686,442 people. And for every person that it employed directly, there was another 3.7 people that had jobs supporting the industry. So in total, there were over three, excuse me, there were over 3.2 million people hired by the industry as a whole. Um, shifting now for just a second, how many of you are familiar with American Idol? 
Okay. I want you to think a minute about that process as you watch American Idol. If you think about the beginning of the season, you've got stadiums full of people. You know, they're all wanting to be the next American Idol. And then those people are going through a review process. They get winnowed down to a smaller group that makes it to Hollywood Week. And then they have more competition that they go through. And then that gets winnowed down to the final 24, which starts in the show. And now they start getting voted off. And then ultimately you end up with your one American Idol. I want you to keep that in mind as we talk about the drug discovery process because it's actually a fairly similar approach. When you look at drug discovery, uh, we'll usually start with anywhere from five to 10,000 compounds that are in the early discovery phase. We'll spend two to four years working with these to figure out what is and is not viable. At the discovery phase is when our patent life starts. Then we'll take those things and we'll go into preclinical. Preclinical is kind of like now moving into Hollywood week. And so we're taking these 250 compounds and we're doing some preliminary work to make sure that they can, in fact, be approved for testing in human beings. That takes another one to two years. Once we go through that, we go into clinical trials. And clinical trials usually have three phases to them. And uh, we're down now to about five compounds that actually may make it to clinical trials. These take anywhere from three to eight years. And in this, we're looking at things like dosaging requirements, what are their side effects, all those kinds of things before we actually take the product to the FDA for, for review. So now we're down to this one compound, your American Idol winner, that we take to the FDA. It takes them anywhere from a half six months to two years to come back with their review on whether it will or will not be approved for market. And then assuming that all of that has gone well, we now go and actually commercially manufacture the product. The only problem we've got is just like American Idol, we don't know if this product is going to be Carrie Underwood or if it's going to be Taylor Hicks. Uh, you just don't know how it's going to perform and what the return is going to be. So if we look at the pharmaceutical life cycle, and this is assuming a Carrie Underwood, not a Taylor Hicks, um, we've got an initial period where all we're doing is spending money. This is the uh, discovery and development period. And um, as I was showing this to my wife last night, she reminded me this is not proportionate, and I should have redrawn it, but I didn't. But anyway, we go through a discovery and development period, and our patent starts then. Once we get all of the approvals, we get to where the FDA has got it for launch. We'll actually launch the product. Now we start hoping that the market's going to buy it. We hope it is something that they consider viable, that they consider if it's a competing product, they consider it better than the competitors. Uh, a lot of times we actually have more problems if it's a brand new product because no one knows how to position that in the larger picture. But we'll go through a period where hopefully we have sales growth and then we start hitting maturity. We've either treated most of the people that have the disease condition or other factors have come into play and the sales start dropping off. That often is somewhat around the time of the patent expiration as well. Ideally, that's when it is. Sometimes the patent expiration is earlier. Uh, then at that point, uh, if the drug is something that there's still a demand for and the demand is large enough, you'll see the generic companies step in and they'll make a generic version of the drug, which tends to further uh, erode the, the uh, labeled product. And then ultimately we end up with an obsolete or uh, a replaced product or it becomes a pure commodity that just competes on price. So that's kind of the life cycle that you normally see with pharmaceutical products. Um, 
as I mentioned earlier, in the pharmaceutical industry, we've got first and foremost in our mind the patient. And one of the key factors for here is patient safety. And so that means that everything that we do, we've got to focus on the quality of it to make sure that we don't in any way endanger the patient. You heard um, Renee talk earlier about some of the regulatory requirements and talking about the problems of that one company that didn't pay good attention in the device world and ended up having major recalls. No company wants to do that because of the damage to the company, but also, more importantly, for the damage to the patients. So we go through a lot of internal focus on that, and then we have a number of regulatory bodies that we respond to. When Renee was going through the list, if you happened to catch that earlier presentation, uh, pretty much everybody that he listed, with the exception of China, we've been audited by. Last year, we had seven different audits. We had the U.S. Federal Drug Administration come in, um, Food and Drug Administration come in and audit us. We had uh, the Korean FDA audit us. We had Anvisa, which is the Brazilian uh, auditing firm, come in and audit us. We had MHRA, which is representing most of the European interests. We also had TUV, which represents the device side of the European interests. We had the Saudi Arabia MOH. We had uh, the Canadian Health. Uh, we had a number of different audits. And actually, that's not a terribly unusual year. So every one of these has certain requirements that we have to meet. And it would be great if they were all the same, but they aren't. Uh, sometimes uh, one country wants something that's more um, extreme, for lack of a better word, than another country wants. Uh, there is work toward harmonization. I think once that is achieved, it will improve our world. But until it's achieved, it's very, very complicated. So what we end up having to do normally is whichever one is the most conservative, that's what we've got to abide by. Because when they come and audit us, we've got to meet that criteria. So that means if you are a consumer in the U.S., uh, we might be able to make the product a bit cheaper if we weren't complying with a regulation that maybe is required by Korea. But nonetheless, we have to meet all of those different things, and that has significant impact. Um, when people first come into our industry that have worked in another one, it's always a huge culture shock because things that are just very normal if you work anywhere else become very constrained in our industry. I'll give you an example. Um, if you were working in a lab and you weren't in a pharmaceutical company and you wanted just to record information that's happening in the lab, you might pull up an Excel spreadsheet and just enter the data into the spreadsheet. Makes sense. That's kind of normal. In our industry, that's not allowed. Uh, if you're going to do that, you have to have very specially designed spreadsheets that have the ability to have audit trails behind the data that's entered. They have to go through a, a computer system validation process to get reviewed. So in our world, a simple spreadsheet costs five to $10,000 in order to make sure that it's compliant with the requirements. So it really becomes interesting. But so that makes cost control somewhat challenging. We still want to do it because obviously the more we reduce our costs, the more competitive we can be in the marketplace and everything else, but we can't ever do it at the risk of either the patient or compliance. So it becomes an interesting challenge. Uh, some other international challenges beyond just the regulatory requirements are the packaging requirements for different countries. This particular slide shows one of our products, Lumigan, and here you'll see it packaged for Korea, for Israel, for um, Turkey, a number of different places around the world, and they'll all have slightly different requirements. In fact, to give you an example of one that's changing right now, Turkey has a new requirement that they want us to do. They want us to put a 2D 
barcode on the packages that includes uh, different kinds of information from the expiry to the lot number to the serial number, etc. At the moment, this is a requirement just from Turkey. Uh, France may be going this way as well. We suspect that at some point the EU and other countries will go in a similar path, but we don't know if it's going to be a 2D barcode or if it's going to be an RFID tag or what it's going to be. But right now, to sell to Turkey, we have to comply with this. And this results in major manufacturing changes to our production line in order to be able to appropriately do that. So all of these are things that add cost and challenge as we try to work internationally. Uh, so I just want to go through a few of those. It gives you a sense and a flavor of some of the things that we do face as a pharmaceutical industry. Um, Finally, I just want to close. This is Allergan's tagline, is that our pursuit really is life's potential. And all of the products that we do, we're trying to improve people's standard of living as we do that. So thank you for your attention. Thank you very much for two very interesting presentations. We have just a few minutes, maybe five minutes, for questions, if we have any. So question. <clears throat> Mm -hmm. Yes, please. I was wondering, maybe this, I'm sure the idea has been thrown around, if you sell pharmaceuticals much like the U.S., how it taxes bigger corporations more. So what if like people who could afford more expensive medicines pay more and people who can't pay less, much like the businesses pay that don't make as much money, they, pay, they get less a tax break. So if we could incorporate that into the medicine? It's an interesting concept. Yeah, it's certainly something beyond what industry would look at. But uh, I'm sure you've thought about it, Dr. Jim. No, I mean, I, th I, think, I, th I think what you're talking about is tiered pricing. So when you, when you think about it, maybe not in one country, because it's always an issue. I mean, one of the points is when people think about you know, unfair medicine prices, if you think of a country like Brazil, there are, you know, the Gini Index, which is like the poverty index you know, between the, you know, the richest and the poorest, it's humongous. Um, there, but there are a lot of very wealthy people, right? So the question is, you know, is it fair that somebody who can actually afford to pay is paying, like, you know, less prices or, you know, what, what have you? Um, I, I don't think there's a perfect solution. I think what, you're, what you might be thinking about in, that, in those terms are more the insurance systems, the drug insurance systems that governments put in place. Therefore, if you have a certain income bracket, you're not allowed to get eligibility to, let's say, subsidize medicines. So I think that theory applies not necessarily in a free market, but maybe more in terms of public drug insurance programs. I've seen this firsthand since I, I first, uh, for the first 18 years, I lived in Mexico, mm -hmm. and my family moved to the U.S., and the same medicine that cost in the U.S. $40 cost 200 pesos in Mexico, which is about $17. Right. So I understand. Right. Yeah, there's an, it's, a global, it's a global market, right? So therein lies the challenge, always. Yeah. Congratulations <laughs> to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Hi. Um, this has been very enlightening as far as how uh, regulation plays into your cost structure. Um, does the industry have an apparatus for kind of uh, trying to hamper some of those um, more extensive regulations that, that, that cost you so much to, you know, retool and revamp your manufacturing process? We don't necessarily have a formal process, but there are ongoing dialogues with the regulatory bodies. And, and I must admit, the FDA is open. They're trying to figure out ways to be more responsive. And so, uh, you know, I think it is something that, that hopefully we will improve over time. But some of it is, I think, just the nature of uh, the way they want to make sure everything is documented and controlled. 
So, okay. yeah. Just to go back to the earlier point, there there actually has been there have been a number of examples of tiered pricing um, around the world over the last few years. And so, for example, the uh, the avian or the swine flu vaccine that was manufactured at the end of last year and earlier this year. Um, has a tiered pricing system set up through the World Health Organization. In, in addition to donations by uh, industrialized countries and by manufacturers, there is also a tiered pricing system. Um, the same thing is really a slightly different style, but the same thing came into play. It's a place with uh, antiretroviral drugs over maybe the last five years. I mean, that's also a combination of donations and, and, uh, and local manufacturers as well. Um, and the third example of that is, is vaccines, where for, for a long time, uh, through UNICEF, there's been a tiered pricing system that, that measles vaccine, for example, in developing countries costs a penny or a penny and a half a dose, where, as opposed to the, the cost here. So, yeah, there, there has been movement in that direction, but it needs a lot of discussion. Okay. Other questions? <clears throat> I was very interested in, in the fact that in Canada it was yeah necessary to, to keep running through the process again for each each instance uh, because what it reminded me of is that here my, my mother who's 92 years old and has uh, has severe dementia at this point uh, lives in Dallas my thankfully I have a sister and a brother who are both in Dallas. Uh, and uh, my mother goes through the, the, the donut hole, for those of you who are the, the uh, uh, Medicare coverage of prescription drugs. It sort of kicks in at the beginning. Then you go through this period of non-coverage in the middle. And then if you run up enough expenses, then it picks up again. But while you're in the donut hole, it's a, it's a pretty expensive process to go through. While you're in that process, you can uh, apply to the drug companies for each individual product that you're using and there's a, a very long complicated process you can go through for one year uh, for each individual drug and so if you happen to be an old person who is uh, uh, fortunate enough to have my sister uh, spending weeks filling out forms calling people figuring out what the process is then you can get a deal for one drug for one year, and then you uh, then you go back into the, the front end of it, you get back into the donut hole again, and you start all over again. Now, whether this is what we want to be doing with 92-year-old people, who most of whom may not have uh, this uh, angelic person who's willing to, to help them with each instance, so that's... Uh, it's an interesting parallel that that uh, we we have these processes in place that on the on the on the face of them would seem to be very helpful, but it, it's you, you you make the process processes so incredibly complicated and costly that it it just seems that they're almost designed to keep anyone from taking advantage of them. So um, uh, I uh, I don't know again what you do with that short of a uh, uh, a pretty significant reform of the system. But. Okay. <clears throat> other, qu other questions? All right. Well, join me in thanking the panelists for the <laughs>